Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is, it's another Warhammer episode, and this time we're looking at the Primarchs. So, ooh, this is a good one, because what this does is absolutely it's an example of unpacking the deliberate nods to real history, or real people in history, shall we say, and also at the same time some sort of inadvertent stuff as well, and also how so much has changed over the period of time with Warhammer 40,000. Now, as I have said multiple times, is the thing about Warhammer 40,000, one of its appeals, if you like, is from the point of view of any of the races involved in this game, is everybody's wrong. So that's it in terms of morality, but also in terms of the history, in inverted commas, everybody's wrong too. It is something that Games Workshop has said time and time again, there is unreliable narrators, there are massive amounts of missing bits of history, and therefore that allows them to A, never really retcon things, and B, it allows them to stick stuff, oh yeah, that's always been there kind of thing. It's very clever. This is one of the reasons why I like it. If you like, this is one of the areas which has come closest to a pure retcon, but again, it's it's not exactly the same thing as a complete reboot, of which is what happened with the likes of Star Trek or Marvel, you know, cinematic universe, sometimes being very different to the Marvel comic books. Right, where to start with this one? Because it's really, really big. So where we are now, if you like, in the 21st century... The Primarchs are well-known, and basically there are 20 founding legions of the Space Marines, the quite literal poster boys of Warhammer 40,000, these genetically enhanced super-soldiers, the peak of humanity. And if you like, the problem with peak of humanity is where I'm going to go into something that nobody saw coming next, toothpaste. Allow me to explain. In the 1990s, well... For the starters, the very first TV commercial in the United Kingdom was for toothpaste. It was for SR Toothpaste. It was quite famous if you're in the advertising world. It was simply toothpaste and a toothbrush frozen into a block of ice with a river running next to it. Very simple. It was a simpler time back then with terms of TV advertising, okay? There's been a battle like in any 
part of the FMCG world. What's that mean? Fast moving consumer goods. So this is something where it gets used up very quickly and therefore there's always a need to buy another one. It could be a can of Coke. It could be toothpaste. It could be bread or whatever. But anything that basically, in essence, rots or gets used up, that's FMCG. And it's where a lot of money is spent in terms of advertising. Think, for example, like alcohol adverts, which is absolutely a part of FMCG. The point is this. Colgate, in the 1990s, wanted to sort of come up with a brand, a sub-brand to Colgate that would almost win the toothpaste wars. And so they came up with Colgate Total. And it sold like hotcakes. It gave you total protection. It didn't just give you fresh breath. It didn't just fight against plaque or gum disease or stuff like that. This was Colgate total. And then a few years later, Colgate realized that they'd painted themselves into a corner because if you're selling Colgate total, nobody wants just regular Colgate anymore. And so what's happened now into the 21st century is Colgate total is almost the brand name for the toothpaste but you can now get Colgate Total Fresh Mint, Colgate Total Whitening, because nobody doesn't want Total. And this is the same problem in Warhammer 40,000, because the Space Marines, when they originally came out in 1987, were seen as the peak of humanity. It, it All these cybernetic enhancements and various genetic manipulations, these were super soldiers that were like eight feet tall and encased in ceramite armor, powered armor, and so they were virtually indestructible. They could live for centuries, maybe even millennia, without catching disease and things like that. They had a third lung that could allow them to breathe poisonous gases and so on and so forth. Except that's not a lung for the record. That would just be more breathing, but this allows them to breathe underwater, breathe toxic fumes and so on and so forth. And that's just one of more than a dozen different genetic enhancements that they have so they're the peak of humanity right but then you've got the custodies these are the people who look after the emperor who for 10,000 years has been locked on the golden throne in a state of sort of near death and they are made from the dna of the emperor and they are the peak of humanity well what about the space marines and then the space marines themselves in eighth edition there was the crossing the Rubicon to become a Primaris space marine, where they were made even bigger and better. What? <laughs> Do you see what I mean? It's like, well, if you're the best as a space marine, now known as the firstborn, then becoming a Primaris space marine upgrades you to what? Bestest? It's ridiculous. But then you've got the Primarchs, the father of each one of of the legions there were originally 20 legions of space marines the first founding this is way before warhammer 40,000 indeed it's actually before the horus heresy which happened about 30,000 and each one of these leaders of their legions was if you like the embodiment of that legion and if a space marine was maybe eight nine feet tall a primarch was 12 feet tall and towered over them now there's a part of you that thinks, well, how far can human physiology go? And, you know, there's a lot of videos out there saying, well, realistically, just because you're tall doesn't make you strong. And actually, if you look at people with various ailments that make them grow excessively large, it can lead to 
all kinds of arthritis and, and, and all kinds of things. These people don't tend to live too long, but we associate height with power and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, let's let's make them 12 feet tall. But just for a moment, if you look at the basic format of a domestic cat that I'm going to use imperial measurements here, but you hopefully get the idea foot's about 30 centimeters. So your average house cat is maybe a foot, possibly foot and a half from head to the base of the tail, not the tip of the tail. But you know, if you like, the body and head of a cat is about foot, foot and a half. And yet exactly the same physiology can get you a tiger, which is seven feet tall. So there are some structures out there that can be blown up into larger sizes and be highly effective. And look, in the far-flung future, why can't they have the technology to do that? In essence, it sounds insane that, if you like, a tall human being might be six foot, a Primark would be 12 feet, we might call them a giant, but they're actually a Primark. Now, I said this is going to get complicated because the Primarks weren't there in the very first edition. of Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader comes out in 1987. There's, there's lots of things that are developing there. For example, early on, it's pointed out that one of the Ultramarines librarians is half-elvish. Now, there's no way in the modern version of the game that a space marine would be allowed to have his blood tainted in inverted commas by Xenos blood or anything like that. Makes complete sense because the Eldar are extremely powerful psychics and all this kind of stuff and the librarians, which sounds like they just go, shh, be quiet. They're actually very powerful psychics. They're a really interesting form of space marine. So that would actually work in theory if they couldn't get past their colossal xenophobia. So oh, there's lots of really interesting stuff in the early days. And indeed, the Primarchs, the first time they're actually mentioned is there were some supplemental books that came out in like 1988 and 1990. And they were some of the last things that I got, which very much delved into the dark forces of chaos. Four chaos gods showing very different types of chaotic behavior. I genuinely think that Zinch is truly the most chaotic because it's about sort of like change and randomness and scheming and everybody's scheming against each other even if you're on my side as a zinch cultist i'll be scheming against you that sounds pretty truly chaotic whereas corn is blood for the blood god there and skulls for the skull throne and he's very violent but if you like he's kind of noble as well there's there's an almost it's you can see why space marines might follow corn because it's about killing about creating as much blood as possible which is kind of what the space marines are for but he's far less chaotic because he's got rules he doesn't like magic as much and so on and so forth so there's four of them just mentioned two of them there's corn the blood god violence etc there's Zinch, the god of change. There's Slanesh, the god of... Well, this is another one. It used to be the god of pleasure, but now it's sort of like the god of change or extremes. And it's like, well, Corn is extremely angry and violent. So, what, you know, if you like to go away from pleasure, which makes complete sense, but obviously they want to keep this thing child-friendly, they've had to sort of like dial back certain elements of Slanesh so, yeah, anyway, so that's that one. And then Nurgle, God of Rot, Decay, and things like that. So those are the four Chaos Gods, and they were chopped up into two books. First one was called Slaves of Darkness, and the other one was called Lost and the Damned, each book covering two of the Chaos Gods. And it talked about stuff that happened in Warhammer 40,000, Warhammer Fantasy, and Warhammer Fantasy Battles. So we've got all of this stuff wrapped together in this interesting book. 
or books, I should say. So let's unpick all of this. I'm going to bounce between the real world and the history of Warhammer 40,000, okay? So at the beginning of all of this, as I just said, there's all these different sort of amazing people, but there was reference in the original Warhammer 40,000 Rogue Trader of genuine children of the Emperor, and they sort of like lived covert lives, worked with or against the Inquisition, and all this kind of... It was a really interesting idea. Those people have kind of been faded out. And so when they started talking about the Primarchs being, and some of the earliest references to the Primarchs were around about 1990 in that Slaves to Darkness one, The Lost and the Dam, the second book, if we're going to get really specific here, when they refer to some of the Primarchs being the sons of the Emperor, they then had the problem of, well, aren't they part of that other group, etc. And what happened later on, far after... I got out of the hobby is we then get the story that the Emperor kind of clones himself. He uses his own DNA, which is, I guess, the same as the Custodes, surely, but anyway. But he then makes a pact with the Chaos Gods to give these people incredible power. And his idea is he's going to trick the gods and keep all of the Primarchs for himself. The gods get wise to this and basically take half of them for themselves and sort of spew them out across the galaxy. And so that the emperor, while he's on this war of unification where he's sort of like going on the great crusade to go across the galaxy and reforge the human empire. All right, I guess I'm going to have to go a bit further back. So around about, let's say, 20,000 years in the future humanity spread across the galaxy there's this huge complex civilization and it falls for reasons that are now completely unclear maybe that ai started attacking humans or whatever and possibly some of these xenos civilizations like the orc for example might have been attacking them as well anyway it all collapses in on itself so then the emperor rises to power on well we would call it planet earth they call it terra and basically unifies the whole of planet earth which sort of is almost like a toxic wasteland by the time he's finished with him, sort of like that anyway. And he's got these elite warriors called the Thunder Warriors. Thunder Warriors get turned into space marines. And then he goes on this great crusade across the galaxy to A, reforge this empire, which is why it's the Imperium of Man, and why he's the emperor as well, obviously, and B, to find all these Primarchs that have been scattered hither, thither, and yon. By the time we get to 30,000 AD, He has got all the Primarchs back, they're all his children again, and they continue on this great crusade. They're now representing different legions and spreading the influence of humanity under the fist of violence, either implied or actual. And then Horus, he becomes tainted by chaos and starts what's known as the Horus Heresy, which lasts for about six or seven years. And it's basically a galaxy-wide conflict. The reality is that all of humanity, only the Emperor, knows about chaos. And basically, psychers and things like that are starting to creep out, but they're seen as an anomaly, they're kind of suppressed. And while the Emperor is saying, I'm not a god, I'm not a god, he absolutely acts in every way like a god. And the thing is, though, this is all meant to show the Emperor's being flawed. As I said earlier, everybody's wrong. But I'm going to say the idea that he's going to trick the Chaos Gods and not think there's going to be any consequences. While there are echoes of those sorts of things kind of tricking a specific god in, in all kinds of mythologies around the world, this just seems it's not 
hubris and he's sort of caught up by it. It just makes him sound like an idiot, to be honest. Also, the Chaos Gods only taking half of them, they're chaotic. This seems very logical and ordered. It seems badly written, to be honest, rather than what they would have reality done, take it all. Because, let's say, you know, I said Slanesh's excess. When is Slanesh going to say, oh, that's enough? That's the exact opposite of what Slanesh is, for starters. So... Oh, there's all these sort of complications around this stuff. But anyway, I'm giving you the sort of like the through line of this all. So the Horus Heresy is really important. It's first reported, basically it's because of Adeptus Titanicus, really. It's a game with big giant stompy robots, although they're scaled down quite a lot. And they only could create enough for one type of model and so it's like well there's a civil war going on isn't there and then so they're fighting against each other yeah let's do that very clever a lot of fun there so horus heresy is being turned eventually into its own game it's basically warhammer 30,000 although it's only between various imperial groups there there are no orcs or eldar or necrons or tau or anything like that in it it's basically it's got its own rule system it's got some of its figures cannot be used in warhammer 40,000 but the great thing is you've got all the Primarchs stomping around in it. And these are huge, amazing figures, incredibly detailed. Most of them are resin, and they're very expensive and very cool-looking. And that's something which sort of Warhammer 40,000 doesn't have, because one of the things... You, you want to make each one of your games kind of unique, and the problem there is that the Horus Heresy is... You know, Space Marines again, it's got Land Raiders, it's got Rhinos, which all those things exist in Warhammer 40,000. So what, what do we have that's different and one of the things is the Primarchs. So that's kind of reality versus the sort of like the fantastical nature. And not all the Primarchs live through the Horus Heresy. The first time it was written down, it's like a one or two page story about how Horus rises, tricks lots of the Imperial legions to sort of follow him, fall to chaos. And there's this big fight between him and the Emperor on Horus's flagship orbiting Terra. He got that far, there'd been a siege of Terra as well, and basically one of the other Primarchs, Sanguinius, he is killed by Horus, and at that point the Emperor realises that there's no way to bring Horus back. He's completely tainted and twisted, and the two of them fight to the death, and there's this marvellous line that the energy generated between the two of these people battling could destroy entire worlds. That gives you an idea of how much power there is in the world of Warhammer. And the Emperor slays Horus, but Horus, in his last dying breath, slashes the Emperor, which is why he's mortally wounded, well, not exactly mortally wounded, and why he's been put on the Golden Throne for the last 10,000 years, and all of that. And what I'm going to say is if all of that had been turned into a trilogy, you know, three or four books, Rise and Fall, The Corruption, the Agonies between sort of like a betrayed father, but also a betraying father, this would have been one of the greatest sci-fi or fantasy series ever. But Games Workshop got greedy. This was the first sign that I wanted to get back into the hobby when I saw books like Galaxy on Flames and Horus Rising and the first trilogy written by Dan Abnett. It was like, this is really interesting, really, I'm really into this. But Horus only decides to start the Civil War at the end of book three, after a, basically a thousand pages. That's how many pages there is in the whole of Lord of the Rings. So what, I've just read three books to get things going. And I read a few more books, 
And I realized pretty quickly that this was just a cash cow that was just going to keep going on and on and on. In the end, there's more than 50 books about the Horus Heresy, plus sort of amalgamations of short stories and novellas as well. And then, as I just said, The Siege of Terror, that's seven books, again, with some analogies and stuff around it. Those still haven't been finished yet. There's too much. They've confused story with lore, L-O-R-E, and... You can't read them as a series of books, unlike, let's say, the Wheel of Time series or anything like this, because it bounces around through so many people, and some of the books are just complete filler, and I gave up with them. The first few of them were on the New York Times bestsellers list, and that's a really impressive sign of how much they did, but I'm telling you right now, by the time you get to book 30, they were not hitting the top 10 on the New York Times bestseller list, because only the hardest of hardcore were bothering to read them. Indeed, Games Workshop was released. It's like, if you're interested in the Salamanders, you want to be reading these books. It's sort of like, I shouldn't be reading only six books in a series. It's not a series if there's only six books relevant to me. And oh yeah, the ending, the final denouements in a different series, the Siege of Terror series. No story needs more than 50 books. That's not a story anymore. So, what I'm going to do is I'm then going to go through each one of the Primarchs and show you how influenced they are with history... Some of them are better than others, spoiler alert. And I'll tell you a little bit about their chapters and also where they are now in Warhammer 40,000, or not, <laughs> in the case of a bunch of them. So, let's start with chapter number one, The Dark Angels, led by Lion L. Johnson. Not Lionel, Lion L. Johnson. Now, the thing is, there is a Lionel Johnson. He was a British poet in the late 1800s he actually died in 1902 and his most famous poem is the dark angel and these are the dark angels so clearly somebody who knew their sort of literary and poetry history that's why he's called that now they rearranged the name a little bit because lion sounds quite cool but, you know, this is the mane of blonde hair and stuff like this. It doesn't seem much like a dark angel. Now, the real Lionel Johnson was a devout Christian, but he was also gay at a time when that was just socially unacceptable. And so a lot of his poems are sort of like dark and longing and all this kind of stuff and angsty for very genuine humanist and very sad reasons. And funnily enough, the Dark Angels chapter is exactly the same. Because what happened during the Horus Heresy is Lion L. Johnson went off, did the Horus Heresy, fought valiantly by the side of the Loyalists to the Emperor. He then comes back to his homeworld of Caliban, which is another literary reference, and he finds that basically everybody back at base have all fallen to chaos, the Fallen as they're known. And so there's this huge battle, and the Loyalist ones wipe out, or sort of like, me make the traitorous dark angels flee lionel is flying ballistic lion l he is mortally wounded and he's sort of put in suspended animation underneath the chapter house of the dark angels and this is now their guilty secret it isn't that they're all gay it's that some of them fell to chaos but actually all sides had some members that fell to chaos this isn't particularly unique but the thing is about this is they kept it all secret, and now, 10,000 years later, there's still a guilty secret. And so, one of the things is, in Warhammer 40,000, some of the evil, chaotic Primarchs, they still exist as demon princes. More on them later, okay? However, in terms of 
loyalist Primarchs. Only recently we've had one of them come back, and the question is, are we going to get some more? And it seems there's lots of discussion about the Lion, as he's sometimes known. He He's the easiest one to bring back. I mean, they also brought back another one who, according to the Lord, had his head cut off, which is kind of terminal. And if you can bring back them, I guess anybody you could bring back. But with the Lion, seeing the fact he's lying on suspended animation and he's had 10,000 years to heal and he's a Primarch and more than capable of healing if he's left alone, he would be an, an easy win or easy one to fit into the, the story and have him come back again. Now, the other thing that's worth pointing out is of the 20 legions. Oh, this is something else I guess I have to point out. Difference between legions and chapters. During the Horus Heresy, each one of these groups, were the, they were the only types of space marines out there. There were 20 different legions. But their legions might be 100,000 space marines. But after the Horus Heresy, it was decided, hang on, if, if people fall, we don't want an army of 100,000 super elite, genetically enhanced super soldiers to be fighting on against us. So they were chopped down into chapters. Suddenly, you still have the Dark Angels chapter in Warhammer 40,000, but they're not meant to number more than 1,000. So you've gone from 100,000 to 1,000. Obviously, there were lots of casualties in the Horus Heresy, but some of them then had to create their own chapter and so there are all these secondary chapters heavily influenced using the same genetic codes for each one of these space marines so that dark angels have lots of succession chapters which it's the same for every single one of these at least loyalist chapters the chaos can do whatever they want so there we go that's number one but games workshop now i like this i mean this hasn't been said overtly but this is clearly what's going on they've always said that there are these 20 original chapters, two of which have been lost to the records. They are never mentioned in the Horus Heresy books, and so therefore their Primarchs and their actual chapters are not listed. And chapter number two is one of the two lost ones, and therefore that allows you to homebrew, to create your own one, and it fits into the overall story. You're not breaking the story because there genuinely was two chapters. Maybe they're loyalists, maybe they're chaotic. Who knows? Well, the answer is you do. You have fun. There's no way to play a game wrong, okay? Have fun with it. Then we come to number three. That's Fulgrim. We're back to a named one. Now, he comes from a planet called Chemos, and Fulgrim, Fulgur, is the Latin for lightning, and I guess he's sort of, a, you know, a bit magical, and he sort of, like, can move super fast. He's one of the ones that fell. He fell to Slanesh. And he's also known as the Phoenician. He is the Primarch of the Emperor's children. And the Phoenicians were famous traders in the ancient era, same time as ancient Greece, etc. They came from modern day places like Lebanon. And they trade, traded all across the Eastern Mediterranean. And one of the things they were famous for was their purple dye, which was highly sought after. Purple was an incredibly difficult color to create pre-industrial synthetic inks and paints. So yeah, they were highly sought after. They earned a lot of money from this. It was made from crushing tiny little maritime shells, which eked out a tiny bit of purple for each one, which is why we've always in the West associated purple with the color purple with things like royalty. So... Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Being called the Phoenician, it harks back to the purpleness, as I just said, and what's the colour of the of the Emperor's children, which is the name of his legion? They are wearing purple, so they wear purple uh, power armour, and therefore it's kind of appropriate that he's called the Phoenician. That's a little nod. I imagine that's there deliberately. It seems a very specific thing to not put down otherwise. And then we come to the fourth legion. The other problem you might notice is, you might say, Jem, you're repeating yourself, and I'm not. It does seem at the very beginning when they had to create these legions, there was a limited amount of creativity. Well, it's like, yes, very clever that you can reference a 19th century English poet, Lionel Johnson. On the other hand, you've got the blood angels and you've got the dark angels. Two with the words angels in them. Really, could you have not come up with anything better than that? You've got the iron hands and you've got the imperial fists. It's like could knees, feet, heads. No, no. Okay, fair enough. But not only is there the iron hands, there's the iron warriors as well. So there's just a lot of repetition going on, which I'm going to say again, it's a sign that I guess limited resource and limited times to create this stuff. So then we come to the Iron Warriors, the fourth chapter, who are, again, they fell to Horus. They sort of, like, were corrupted. And you've got their leader, Perturabo. Interestingly, there's a bit of a jump here, and it's Perturta with a T, Perturabo. But Perturabo is Latin for I will endure. And this was the motto of Alistair Crowley, who was a early 20th century mystic, basically. He was referred to at the time, in the 1920s, as the most evil man alive. He lost that title in the 1930s for obvious reasons, but he created this sort of spiritual way of life and living and sort of spirituality called Thelema. It was to do with sort of like trying to do magic casting, basically lived for quite some time in his own little commune in Italy, kind of brainwashed people. There was a lot of crazy stuff. He was actually very influential to some of the thinking of the counterculture in the 1960s. 
and he's sort of like the core of lots of occult theories and things like that because that's what he liked to do and claimed that he could genuinely conjure magic so that doesn't sound very much like Perturabo talking about all this magic and sort of seductiveness that might fit some of the other people most notably something like Magnus the Red a Primarch I'll come on to in a little bit but the phrase I will endure is exactly what the Iron Warriors are they're sort of like into attritional warfare, there's heavy hitters, they hunker down. This kind of all makes sense. But I'm going to move on from that one because it's not a particularly big link there. Then we come on to one which has a lot of links. We've got the White Scars led by Jagadai Khan. And this is basically the Whammer 40,000 version of the Mongols. They are fast-moving, rapid deployment. They like their bikes and jet bikes and things like that. So that fits the Mongol style of sort of hit and run with their horses, and indeed, while Chagatai Khan was not one of the great Khans, like Genghis or Ogadai or Kublai or somebody like that, there was a Chagatai Khan. Khan, by the way, means sort of like ruler. So Genghis Khan, you know, I've said this before on some of the other podcasts, Genghis Khan was a title. His name was Temujin. He was crowned after uniting all of the Mongol peoples and then starting to expand. He was crowned Genghis Khan or Chinggis Khan, which basically means universal oceanic ruler. And so there was a Jagadai Khan. He basically ruled one of the Khanates. The Mongolian Empire was split into huge territories. Each one was called a Khanate, and he was in charge in basically Central Asia and Khanate, very much close to the homelands. And he was the second son of Temujin Genghis Khan. So obviously all of that fits history pretty closely. Now I've just realised, I started off by telling you what had happened to Lion L. Johnson, the fact that he was lying in suspended animation. I said what's happening to them now as it were. You're going to find that a number of these people are sort of missing, some of them are dead, but there's definitely a bias towards the chaos ones or the, the traitor ones because they tend to be more alive than the loyalist ones. So number one was Lion L. Johnson, and as I said, he's in suspended animation. Number two, we don't know anything about. Number three, Fulgrim seems to have been turned into a demon prince and still seems to be kicking around now in the in the time of Warhammer 40,000. It's the same thing with Perturabo. He's also become a demon prince. He seems to be living in the warp or the Eye of Terror or whatever. And he is kicking out various Iron Warriors legions to fight against the Empire. Or the Imperium of Man, I should say. Jagadai Khan was last seen being held in, in essence, a slave fighting in these gladiatorial pits for the Dark Eldar. So he could come back quite easily. He seems to be enjoying himself fighting, but he's been doing that for thousands of years. And, you know, if he's that loyal, surely he should be coming back again. And also, I find it very hard to believe that trying to contain a Primarch, somebody who can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a greater demon from Chaos and Warp, would be able to stop him if he really wanted to leave. So he could be brought back quite easily. Then we come to, and I've done a sort of like episode about Imperial tanks and sort of Warhammer tanks, and I talk about the Lehman Russ. I mean, it's called Lehman Leman. This stuff is all written down, and he is in charge of the Sixth Legion, the Space Wolves, which are very much loyalist. Now, to begin with, the Space Wolves were kind of similar to all the other ones, but then over the years, even by the end of the first edition, in in like the early 1990s. There was clearly this kind of wolf vibe going on, not just with wolves, but going into sort of like full Nordic. And indeed today, they are dripping with sort of runes and sort of Viking iconography. 
but also sort of werewolfy stuff as well. They live on Fenris, which is the old word for wolf. You get the idea. That is literally the Norse. Fenrir is the great wolf. It's one of the children of Loki, which is why you also get Fenrir Greyback in the Harry Potter book. So anyway, all the way back to Lehman Russ. This is probably because his surname is Russ. The Rus were, and I did all this one in the episode about Ukraine, there were these Slavic peoples that ended up interacting with Viking travelers who founded a trading post that got to be called known as Kiev. And eventually the word Rus is associated and is literally the name for Russia. So all of these people together have this kind of Scandinavian background. And because they're called the Space Wolves, I guess, you know, that's the direction they had to go rather than, let's say, Soviet era, Red Army era. That is far more Imperial Guard than any kind of Space Marine legion or chapter so there isn't a le man russ poet or anything like that but the russ russ however you want to say it is definitely linked to some real history from about a thousand years ago 1100 years ago so it was in the 900s that kiev was actually founded by the vikings as a trading post with the local russ slavic communities so there we go that's number six then we come to rogaldorn but before we come on to Rogel Dawn, do you know what? Trying to tell you the fate of these people is kind of hard. So Le Man, Lehman, Russ, he goes off just after the Horus Heresy. He has this vision. So he gathers together his most faithful warriors and he heads off into the galaxy. And that's the last time he's seen. Again, really easy for him to come back again if they want to make that happen. And does beg the question, what's he been doing for 10,000 years? For the record, 10,000 years is longer than civilizational writing has existed by a long way, for the record. So there we go. So then, Rogel Dawn, he is in charge of the Imperial Fist. He's another loyalist, and he's sort of often seen with silver hair in sort of striking and in very impressive pose in gold armor. So that looks quite regal. Rogel might be just a slightly different way of doing that. And the thing about Dawn is it means different things in different languages. So basically, if you go into Anglo-Saxon, Dawn was an old kind of fortification, a bit like a burr, for example. And in Gaelic, it means literally fist. Now, considering the Imperial Fists were well known for their building of defensive areas and things like that, not just fortifications, but sometimes they would mine an entire region of space around a planet that they were laying under siege. There's no way to get to it or escape from it, apart from if you were the Imperial Fist. So that Dawn bit absolutely works quite well with two ancient languages. And in terms of what happened to him, his hand, his fist, if you like, was found, and it's sort of like now being used by the Imperial Fists on their chapters and in, in terms of you know, some of their sort of sacred relics, and he hasn't been seen again, presumed dead. But like I said, if somebody's had, and we haven't got to this one yet, but if somebody's had their head cut off, presumed dead, and come back again, then just losing your hand and, of course, coming back with a big cybernetic iron fist you know, for to be the Imperial Fist Primark, that would work absolutely fine if they wanted to bring him back. So then we come to number eight and we get to Conrad Kurz of the Night Lords. This is another one that actually went the way of chaos. So this one's actually pretty easy to do. And again, it's literature, literary. So Joseph Conrad wrote Heart of Darkness, which is a story about going into what was then Belgian Congo and sort of like the horrors of the sort of slavery and the sort of the insanity of this. And he was trying to meet this man called Kurtz, 
And basically, this was turned into, this sounds familiar, this was turned into Apocalypse Now. The insanity of the Belgian Congo was replaced by the insanity of the Vietnam War. And instead of just a sort of, well, it is a journey down a river, but now with the specific intent of not like a traveler, but now a military personnel member who's going to go and find and assassinate Kurz, or Kurtz, I should say, the individual who was going down that river in Apocalypse Now was played by Martin Sheen. So Conrad Kurz of the Night Lords, who, by the way, his planet of the Night Lords is Nostromo, and there was another Conrad book called Nostromo, which, if that sounds familiar, that was the name of the first ship in, in the movie, 1979 movie Alien. So all these literary references around him. So Joseph Conrad becomes Conrad, and Kurtz becomes Kurz, and... He is assassinated by an imperial assassin called Mshin. So that's obviously Martin Sheen's name shortened. I don't know if this is super clever or a little bit silly. You decide on that. Yeah, so Conrad Kurz is one of these ones that, again, is sort of dripping with literary references. And he's definitely dead, okay? So the Night Lords have to sort of pick other leaders now. So then we come to the ninth chapter, that is the Blood Angels, who I've already mentioned in passing, and they are led by Sanguinius, and Sanguine is basically the Latin for blood, so he's blood in charge of the Blood Angels. There's not a lot of thought got into that one, but also blood was one of the four humours during sort of ancient and medieval medicine. There's this idea that you could have too much bile or phlegm. And one then is blood, which is why leeching, bleeding was an important part. You know, having too much blood could make you sanguine. What does sanguine mean, literally? It's sort of like being optimistic against the odds. So if all odds are lost, but you're still going for it, you're still optimistic, then you are being sanguine. And that's exactly what Sanguinius was in the Horus Heresy, because as I mentioned earlier, he went toe-to-toe with Horus and died. And actually, that death is sort of echoed into the Blood Angels. It's sort of known as the, the Black Rage. And suddenly they can go, sometimes go crazy and sort of shoot anybody nearby thinking it's the person who killed Sanguinius. So he's very much dead and he dies in the Horus Heresy. And so does number 10 as well. So this is Ferris Manus of the Iron Hands. And do you know what Ferris Manus means in Latin? It means Iron Hat. <laughs> So, yeah, okay, that was a pretty, again, somebody just had ran out of time. It's like, let's do that. Let's do that really quickly. He is also known as the Gorgon, and that's another name for Medusa. And guess what the name of their homeworld is? It's Medusa, okay? But again, this sort of like, it's Latin and ancient Greek, these references there, although this is, I'm going to say, a pretty lazy one. And he was killed again during the Horus Heresy at the big epic battle. This is like the first battle, the first time the Loyalists realize something's gone wrong and some of their brothers are suddenly attacking them at the Battle of Istvan V. This is epic. Indeed, it's so epic. And going back to the books, it was very epic the first time I read it. But when I read the entire battle from a different perspective, that's when I started reading, oh, come on, this, is, this story isn't going anywhere just repeating the same battle. I've already know about this battle. I, could I have some more information, please? So he was actually killed at the Battle of Istvan V by Fulgrim, who I've already mentioned he was in charge of the Emperor's Children, chapter number three. So there we go. That's ten legions down. There are ten legions to go. And so we move on to the World Eaters Legion, which is one of the ones that fell to chaos. They're a traitor legion. And they fell specifically to Corn, that blood god I mentioned earlier. So they are quite 
angry. They have got berserkers as part of their military units, and they're led by Angron. And it seems that it might just be a sort of version of the word angry, because he is very angry. However, there is a rumour online, I cannot verify this, but I like it and I will share it with you, that apparently in the 1980s in Nottingham, which is where Games Workshop was sort of set up, it wasn't actually where it started, but it's where it started to grow, there was obviously a thriving nightlife. And one of the most popular nightclubs there had a bouncer, guy on the door, stopping people coming in or not. And his name was Ron, and apparently he was quite angry and quite grumpy, and so he was known as Angry Ron. And I wouldn't put it past the creators, because in a couple of versions time, we're going to have something that dumb, by the way. Well, there's a few of them coming up that's a bit weird and dumb. So, yeah, it could just be a reference to a bouncer in Nottingham in the 1980s, Angry Ron, Angron. Okay, let's move on. Oh, by the way, Angron is still very much alive. He's one of these ones that had fallen so totally to the Dark Gods that he is now a demon prince. And in 2023, there is finally a model of this demon prince version of Angron, as opposed to the Primarch Angron, coming out. So then we move on to another one that's kind of dumb. So we move on to the Ultramarines, which really are the poster boys of Warhammer 40,000. If you've ever seen Power Armor and it's in blue and it's got a sort of Greek-looking U on it, that's an Ultramarine, okay? And they're led by Reboot Gulliman, and they're very much leaning into the kind of classical world to Roman and ancient Greek. And Reboot Gulliman is... Well, it seems the writer claims that it was taken as a random name from a newspaper while they were on holiday in France. So, yeah, if if Reboot Gulliman can have that name, then I don't see why Angry Ron can't be the inspiration of Angron, okay? And Reboot Gulliman, I keep mentioning, this one, these Primarchs had their head cut off. Yeah, so it's that's Reboot Gulliman. However, it turned out he didn't quite have his whole neck severed. There was still a flap of skin, and they were able to revive him over many, many thousands of years. If that sounds vaguely familiar to you, that's the same backstory as Nearly Headless Nick from Harry Potter. All right? And for the record, Reboot Gullywon, as I said, he has made a full comeback. He is the only loyalist Primarch that is actually somebody you can play on the tabletop today in Warhammer 40,000. But there is rumours that another loyalist might come back, and certainly there are a lot more demon Primarchs on the Chaos side than there certainly are than just Bobby G, as he's nicknamed on his own. So then we come to Mortarion of the Death God. That one's, again, pretty easy. Mort or Mortis is the Latin for death, and he runs the Death God. Although, this is an example of one of the legions that actually used to have a different name. They used to be known as the Dusk Raiders, but then Mortarion took them in charge and sort of got them to fight in this very toxic environment. And so they sort of like where other people would die, they survived. So that's where they got the name Death Guard, and he is another one that's turned into a demon prince, and this may not surprise you, all the different types of Chaos Gods. Yup, he's gone for Nurgle, the rotting one, because that's kind of what his body has done. Then we move on to Magnus the Red. Now, Magnus is obviously, again, Latin for great, and this could be great for all kinds of things. He could be because he's very, very tall and very, very red. I mean, he's a huge red guy with the weirdest armor you've ever seen. He's got massive wings, which is obviously unusual. He's now a demon prince for Zinch, by the way. I'm talking about the Whammer 40,000 version of him rather than what he was like back in the times of the Horus Heresy. He's sort of fully converted to a demon prince. And 
he has his breastplate with these two massive horns sticking out of it, like elephant tusks. And it's like, that's never existed in history. But then again, you do you, you giant red person. Now, he is an amazing psyker. He's got, so basically, he's a magician, basically. So that could be what the great Magnus could be in reference to. But the interesting thing is he is the leader of the Thousand Sons Legion. And they come from a planet called Prospero, which, if you know your Shakespeare, Prospero is the sorcerer, the magician from the Tempest. So, again, a bit of a literary reference going on there. Next, we come to Horace Lupercal, and he used to run the Lunar Wolves, but then in his honour, because he was the most trusted of all the Primarchs, which is what means that his fall is even more shocking to the Emperor... His entire legion is renamed to the Sons of Horus. Now, after the Horus Heresy, once, spoiler alert, as I've already said, Horus is killed, they can't really be the Sons of Horus anymore. So nowadays in the Warhammer 40,000, they are the Black Legion. Now, the interesting thing is he's named after Horus, who is an ancient Egyptian god, and he was the son of Set. Basically, Horus was the son of two of the principal gods in the Pantheon, and basically Horus is kind of whisked away just like the the Primarchs were sort of like whisked away from the Emperor's hands, and he basically returns to do battle against Set to basically get his rightful place in the Pantheon of Gods, which is pretty much the story of Horus. And let's face it, that kind of story has appeared in lots of different mythologies. But it is also worth pointing out that one of the other versions of Horus in the ancient Egyptian world is he was the god of war, which would make sense seeing Horus was the war master as well. Lupercal... Another reference to wolves, hence the Lunar Wolves. So they were Lunar Wolves, then they were the Sons of Horus for actually not very long, and then they became the Black Legion. So that's the Legion linked to Horus, who is now very much dead. Then we come to Lorgar of the Wordbearers. Now Lorgar's an interesting guy. He's another one that sort of falls to the Traitor Legions, and he is sort of super faithful, and, and sort of he's a man of extreme faith, looking for somebody to sort of pour his faith and reliability in, which is initially the Emperor, but then later on to Horus. And one of his other names, Lorgard, kind of doesn't mean anything, all right? I guess it sounds a bit like law. But the other thing that he is, is he's known as the Eurizen, which is a reference, yet again, to some old British poetry. In this case, it's 18th century poet William Blake, who also had a Eurizen, this character who was kind of like a, a creator. He is creator of laws and things like this, and so that kind of ties into Lorgar. He is very rational, though, whereas Lorgar has this kind of blind faith, so it could almost be a twisted version of what William Blake had in mind. We'll see. Once again, it's an example of one of the guys who wasn't killed during the Horus Heresy, but this Primarch slunk into the warp and hasn't been seen since, so can therefore be brought back at any time. Some of these, you know, to sort of like keep them in the background if in case we need them, have kind of unsatisfying background stories, because if any of these people are these great amazing warriors and leaders, why have they been hiding away for 10,000 years? That doesn't really seem to match most of their personalities. Then let's go to another loyalist, Vulcan of the Salamanders. Now, if you don't know, Salamanders, the amphibians, have this really strange relationship in the ancient world. They're connected very much with fire, even though salamanders are amphibians and would do very badly near fire. Sometimes people think that they are born in fire. Sometimes people think they produced fire. But salamanders and fire have been around together sort of since the time of the ancient Greeks. 
And Vulcan is obviously where we get the term volcano from. Vulcan was the Roman god of the forge, so we're talking about fire again, also big hammers, when his symbol was a hammer, and Vulcan, the Primarch, has a massive big hammer. So all these things are linked together quite nicely. They come from the planet of Prometheus, which is the name of the Titan who brought fire. He was the Titan who stole the gift of fire and gave it to humans, but his punishment was he was chained to a rock and would have a bird peck out his liver every day for the rest of eternity because they made sure that Prometheus sort of like lived forever and Vulcan is also immortal so he's not dead he's died many times but he takes him a while to come back but he comes back every time and he has jet black skin as in coal levels of black not just a person from Africa black so that's Vulcan he's still around he's always around and that's the salamanders just another little aside there to sort of like the the ancient world so i mentioned prometheus is the, is the planet but vulcan himself is meant to come from hesiod city and hesiod is the first chronicler of the story of prometheus the titan that we've got a copy of so therefore there's all these literary allusions very specifically around salamanders fire and forges so that all makes sense then we've got another one of these unknown primarchs like i said there's two of them make of that as you will then we're nearly at the end everybody okay we've got the raven guard led by corvus corax which is the scientific name for a raven that was pretty easy to to deal with now he's an example the raven guard are a loyalist chapter but basically corvus corax feels that he hasn't done enough and he's sort of let the side down so he is another one that goes into the warp in search of sort of doing the right thing and hasn't been seen since for like nearly 10,000 years. So where is he? What's he doing? And basically the Raven Guard are sort of like seen as the goths or emos of all those space marine chapters. They're all sort of floppy head and dark and they're very good at sort of like infiltration tactics and stuff like that. Finally, we come to the Alpha Legion. The 20th and final legion is called the Alpha Legion, which means this was the first letter in the Greek alphabet and the leader is Altharius. Now, he was the first of the Primarchs to be rediscovered by the Emperor after they will be cast away by the gods of chaos. So that's why he's Alpharius. But it's said, rumoured, that this isn't sort of like specifically canon, but it's hinted at that he had a twin brother called Omegon. And Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And therefore that would kind of make sense. But Alpharius of the Alpha Legion, Alpha, 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 number one, number one, number one, last doesn't make a lick of sense, really, when you think about it. Now, what happened to him? He fought Rogel Dawn, the Primarch of the Imperial Fists, on Pluto. And Rogel Dawn killed him. So there we go. So Alpharis is flat out dead. So what we've got there is pulling it all together. It's, it ties together a lot of Warhammer lore. But also you can see they are pulling at all kinds of influences, anything from potentially an angry bouncer in Nottingham in the 1980s to multiple British writers from different eras. It's really interesting too, you know, Mongol history. So if you like, the Primarchs of Warhammer are exactly why I do a condensed histories, because it, it's exactly where we start with a bit of pop culture and you might accidentally learn some history or some poetry while you're at it. So that's it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this one. I know it was a longer one, but hey, I had 20 of them to get through, plus also setting the scene. But as always, there'll be another episode coming soon.
a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.